4: Wednesday morning, the 24th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Fianna Fáil Minister of State Robert Troy says that he misunderstood how he, like all TDs, is required to declare all of the businesses and properties he owned in any given year that he served in the Doyle Minister Troy says he's embarrassed by the way he misunderstood his obligations, apart from not declaring his business interests and properties that he's owned to to SIPO, the Standards in Public Office. He failed to meet a legal obligation to register a property he is renting to the RTB. And today the Irish Independent says a property co-owned by the Minister is being investigated for alleged unauthorised development. A development, the paper says, also has no fire safety certificate. Add lobbying for increases to housing supplements and flipping properties for huge profit. And you have a minister who today is very much on the ropes. Robert Troy's future hangs in the balance and it will concern his colleagues in Fianna Fáil and in the government parties for many reasons, none less because of the distraction that this scandal is causing. The budget is a month off. People are struggling to get by, finding it hard to make ends meet on a day-to-day basis and all indications are that it is going to get worse before it gets better. The Irish Times reports today that a confidential briefing note to government warns that a long-lasting disruption to fuel supplies could result in civil disorder. And then there's the question of keeping the lights on. The national grid has come under pressure, causing a number of amber alerts. We need to reduce our use of electricity. And there is, it seems, a chance of power cuts this winter. Now, I don't know where this has come from, and I think a lot of people are scratching their heads wondering where this has come from. How has it happened? Uh, A lot of us are surprised at the idea that there is an electricity shortage. So much so that the regulator wants to increase charges in the peak hours between 5 and 7 in the evening. The Taoiseach seems to be very surprised uh, by this, uh, apart from anybody else. But should it be a surprise? Let's uh, speak uh, to former Minister uh, Dennis Nocton, who's on the line in Independent TD for Roscommon Galway. And a, a very good morning to you, Dennis Stockton, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Good morning, Michael. Are, are you surprised at, at the idea that there may be such a shortage of electricity that there may be power cuts?
5: No, I'm not surprised, but I am very surprised to hear some of the commentary that I'm hearing from some of our senior politicians in this country uh, at the moment. And I made the the Cabinet aware uh, of these issues as far back as 2017 uh, in terms of the number of of data centres that we were allowing onto the grid uh, at the time, Uh, and uh, in fairness, the Uh, you know, the people that are managing the great air grid and that would have flagged that up, not just to Uh, me as energy minister, uh, but to many of the other relevant uh, government agencies, such as the IDA uh, and so forth at the time. Uh, And they have highlighted this consistently since that. Mm. And at the time, we put a number of measures in place to try and mitigate against uh, what we're now experiencing at the moment. But we did flag up at the time that, you know, we couldn't continue to manage the the volume of data centres that were being put onto the grid particularly uh, in the Dublin region uh, where we have had at the time and still have very tight uh, electricity supplies. And that's where the particular problem is, Mm. is in the broader Dublin region. And that's why the development of the uh, offshore wind in the Irish Sea was key to try and supplement uh, that supply there.
4: Right, Uh, And uh, a couple of uh, data centres were licensed in the Dublin area in the last couple of weeks, I think.
5: Yes, uh, look, uh, I think it's, I've been hugely frustrated. And look, I have uh, articulated this in the Dáil over a long period of time uh, that we needed to manage the data centres that were coming onto the grid, uh, where they were coming on, what data centres were uh, getting approval. um, You know, and it's been quite public uh, in relation to this. uh, But everything that I've said in public over the last uh, number of years I had articulated, uh, you know, to the cabinet and my cabinet colleagues uh, when I was Minister for Energy. Mm.
4: Uh, but to no uh, avail, obviously, um, we've heard a lot of people talk about uh, a prohibition on licensing new data centres uh, for the very reasons that uh, you're outlining uh, today. I think there was a dull motion, if not a couple of dull motions, uh, to that uh, effect. Uh, but the government argues uh that uh, they're very important to the economy, they create a a lot of jobs, uh, and we're hearing uh, that there's a lot of problems with the wind. It's not breezy enough to create enough energy. Uh, Where does the truth lie?
5: Right, well, look, there's a number of issues here, and... Before the end of the show, I do want to come back to the proposed blackouts or, uh, at the, in, in the peak times because I think it's important that listeners know about that. Yeah. But come back to your question, uh, first of all. Uh, so the, the reality is that data centres themselves do not create a lot of jobs. However, data centres that are connected with uh, major employers here in this country are strategically important uh, for Ireland to be based here uh, in this country. The difficulty is the location of those data centres. So we have locations right across the country where we have good electricity supplies. And uh, what we should have been doing back uh, in the last decade is ensuring that those data centres that were being developed were being developed on points in the grid uh, where there was a very strong supply uh, of electricity rather than adding to uh, uh, data centres' demand for electricity within the Dublin region where electricity supply was constrained. Uh, That's the first thing. Secondly, we've had a number of data centres that have been developed in this country where there weren't key anchor tenants uh, that were creating a lot of jobs in this country, where the data that we're storing uh, is, you know, for uh, companies all over Europe or all over the world, which were effectively speculative data centres. And where there wasn't a direct employment connection here in this country, we should not have been facilitating the development of those data centres. Now, yes, there has been a pause put uh, since the beginning of this year, the end of last year, on uh, new uh, data centres getting approval for grid connections. However, there's a substantial number of them already within the system. And the difficulty is they are going to come onto the grid between now uh, and 2030. So while we have a very difficult situation this winter and next winter, it isn't going to really get any better uh, until the pause that was announced last year actually comes to fruition in about five or six years' at time. And in the meantime, we're going to have huge challenges as we increase the amount of renewable electricity on our grid. Now, yeah. coming back to your yeah. issue in relation yeah. to wind, yes, look, wind is intermittent. Uh, and the difficulty is that, particularly during the summer months, and we've seen this summer, particularly where you have sunshine, uh, the wind speeds drop. The more consistent winds are available... Uh, off our shore uh, in our our waters and that's why uh, as minister I was trying to ensure that some of the offshore uh, wind farms on on the east coast uh, could get planning and authorisation to go into production and that we developed a proper planning process uh, to develop floating offshore uh, wind farms uh, off our west coast because the winds are much higher They're much more consistent, much more reliable, and that would lead to less uh, intermittent um, wind uh, on
6: our grid.
4: Okay. But the real culprit here, uh, if you like, is the data centres. They're putting the big drain on on the grid. Uh, And if that's the case, is it the data centres who should uh, be covering the cost of of this, or should we be paying 26 euro uh, uh, on average for our bills every year, if we're going to watch the six o'clock news, have our our dinner between five and seven, or use dialysis machines or other uh, very important uh, things that need electricity during those hours?
5: Well, look, I I think data centres have no doubt been part of the challenge and a big part of the challenge uh, up to now, but they could in the short term actually be part of the solution because all of the data centres in this country have uh, a backup supply uh, on site. And what needs to happen now, uh, particularly over the winter months, in the peak demand, which was usually between 5 and 7 p.m., is that those data centres need to use that backup supply rather than relying on the existing electricity supply. And they should, if they have additional capacity, put that back uh, onto the electricity grid, taking pressure off uh, other supplies. Mm. Now, in terms of your question regarding... Dialysis machines are watching yeah. uh, the the six one uh, news. The plan is not uh, to uh, cut the supply to domestic users across this country. There has been no consideration whatsoever been given to it, and I've had a number of older people who have contacted me over the last number of days in a panic. Well, what's going to happen if, you know, I can't use my electricity between five and seven? Uh, My heating is connected to uh, the electricity supply as well because the pumps don't work. And I said, look, you can relax in relation to it. There is no plan whatsoever to cut electricity supply uh, to any uh, domestic uh, user in this country whatsoever. What is being spoken about? Is that there could be a cut in electricity supply to very large electricity users like the data centres, like many other large electricity users uh, in this country Mm. between those peak hours? That's what happens. So it's an issue for industry. It's a big issue uh, for industry, but it is not an issue for domestic users. There may be a small increase in the bills. To increase the cost of electricity mm. between uh, those hours. Uh, but and, and that's AirGrid the 26
4: road. euro over the course of a year.
5: Yeah, but mm. as AirGrid have already said, logistically it's not possible uh, to do that uh, at the moment. Uh, so it is very unlikely to see uh, additional charges being introduced specifically uh, for the use of electricity between uh, those particular hours. I think it will be a broader increase across the board if it takes place, which doesn't solve the problem. Now what you will see happen is you will see the regulator and air grid trying to encourage people not to use electricity between those hours. So look, mm. don't use your washer, your dryer, if you're, or dishwasher between those hours. If you're doing that, do it later uh, in the night uh, when there is less demand on electricity grid. That's the type of thing but is not going to be asking people not to cook a dinner, not to watch the television, not to use your dialysis machine between those hours.
4: Okay. Uh, if I can ask you maybe about some of the other issues uh, that I mentioned at the top of uh, the programme, because you're a, a member of uh, the regional independent uh, group, uh, along with local TDs here, Padder Tobin and Peter Fitzpatrick, and uh, along with the five other members of uh, that group, you're to meet today with uh, Ministers Pascal Dunahoo and Michael McGrath, uh, with what the Irish Times described yesterday, I think, or last week uh, as a shopping list ahead of the budget. (laughs) Uh,
5: Yes, uh, myself and and, uh, Peter Fitzpatrick and the other uh, independent uh, TVs in the regional group will be meeting with the Minister for Finance and the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform Uh, later today. We've done this uh, uh, prior to every budget since the last general election Uh, and we've been quite successful in getting uh, measures introduced for example the recently announced 30,000 euro grant uh, for the refurbishment of vacant homes is an initiative that we put forward uh, for the budget and was accepted by uh, both ministers and announced as I say by Darrell O'Brien last month another one would have been the grant for the refurbishment uh, of community centres is another proposal that we uh, have brought forward in the past so what we're looking for in this year's budget uh, is a budget that incentivizes work um, you know look a lot of people at the moment are struggling to to meet the day-to-day costs whether it be electricity uh, food costs and so forth uh, but the difficulty is that if they take on additional hours of work take on additional days of work the taxation system uh, actually penalises them. So what we want to see is that uh, the PRSI system, the tax credit system uh, is altered to ensure that people are always financially better off to be in work rather than on welfare. And when they are in work that they're better off doing additional hours of work uh, rather than not doing them, that they're financially better off as a result of that. So it means changes to the taxation code. It also means uh, changes to the the working family payment operated by the Department of Social Protection. And we believe that that's vitally important for for families across this country. We also want to see a a, um, free public transport provided to students be they third-level students, PLC students or apprentices. Uh, because, look, a lot of uh, families at the moment are struggling with young people going back to college. As you know, we have an accommodation crisis at the moment. You know, quite a lot uh, of, of students that, that are going from County Loud and Meath uh, are within a commutable distance of, of either um, Dundalk or, or Dublin, And if they had access to to free public transport, uh, it may be an option for them to commute to college rather than getting expensive accommodation uh, in the Dublin area. Mm. Uh, We also want to see a a 0% um, loan introduced for the retrofitting uh, of homes because The cost of retrofitting a home at the moment is somewhere between 60 and 80,000 euro on average. Now, while people will get a 40% grant uh, to do that work, the reality is families do not have the money to meet the balance. Mm. So, what we want is a zero interest loan. That would be paid back through a person's electricity bill over the next 10 to 15 years based on the savings they're making uh, in terms of their energy demand uh, so that they're living in warmer homes, uh, reducing their overall energy costs, uh, which is better for the environment. It's helping to meet our uh, 2030 targets of reducing costs uh, for families as well.
4: Okay. Uh, these are some of uh, the items on your shopping list uh, and uh, you'll uh, undoubtedly have something to offer in return. Will you be pointing to the fact that the government is short uh, one uh, in terms of a majority and that it, it might uh, be short too soon? Or, or what's your thoughts on Robert Troy's position this morning?
5: Well look, the uh, our view is, and before each of the last two budgets, we met with both the Minister for Finance and the Minister for Public Expenditure Reform, uh, and we set forward our proposals. Uh, some of those then were incorporated uh, into the, the budget itself. Each of us uh, will look at the budget announcement uh, on Budget Day and decide whether uh, we're going to support the government or not on the individual questions that are put forward. Um, on average, most of us have supported the budget and finance bills. Mm uh in the past. I believe we're probably likely to do that if some of the issues that we have flagged uh ha- are reflected uh on budget day. In mm-hmm. terms of the Robert Troy issue, look I think uh the I don't think Robert deliberately tried to uh conceal uh, anything. I think he did a bad job in in, in making his uh, returns Uh, and I think, you know, he needs to to clarify the outstanding issues uh, that are there in relation to that.
4: Okay, but uh, if he does that to your satisfaction, you'd be happy enough for him to remain in office?
5: Look, I think Robert has done a a good job uh, as Minister of State uh, and, you know, he's someone that many of us have worked quite closely with uh, over the the last uh, two years or so. I think it is, embarrassing embarrassing for, for Robert uh, what has come out in terms of the way that he submitted uh, his declaration form uh, but in fairness I think in the vast majority of cases in terms of the properties involved he did make declarations of those in previous years it wasn't that he was trying to, to conceal it and I think that you know he does need to provide the clarity that is being requested now.
4: Okay thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning uh, that's Independent TD for Roscommon Common. Galway, Dennis Nocton, who's a member of the Regional Independent Group and former Minister for Energy.
1: Michael, Michael Reid on, on LMFM.
4: FM. Now, the Border Communities Against Brexit group says uh, that uh, the bill that uh, the British government is to introduce, which would do away with uh, the Northern Ireland protocol, will wreck business and introduce border checks. Let's speak to Damien McGennity who's coordinator of Borders uh, Communities Against Brexit. Good morning to you Damien, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. I think most people listening to us here this morning uh, would uh, agree with that and say tell us something new, Uh, but you're suggesting that this is by design as such, because uh, you reckon that the Tories along with uh, the ERG group in the Tories and the DUP and the UUP are actually seeking to create havoc.
7: Well, that's what this bill does. We have to call a spade a spade. You know, um, we in border communities, um, you know, don't have to be that politically correct, maybe like some of the bigger lobby organisations do, uh, where we see language constantly being used where this will fix the protocol. It won't fix the protocol. This will effectively wreck the protocol. Uh, Simply, how this will happen. This bill allows um, goods to come into the north that do not meet EU standards. The particular um, nightmare for this island is that we would have food ingredients come into the north um, and then because we don't have border checks that those uh, unregulated food ingredients will then end up in the EU single market. And we know and people know that if common sense applies to this, that's where border checks will have to happen. Um, and the Democratic Unionist Party leader, the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, they know this. It's like the unspoken thing that no one wants to talk about. And this is what we're looking at. Mm. It's, it's more than likely that Liz Truss will be Prime Minister. She's been backed by the ERG. And the other side of, of, of the politics of this is that the ERG... And Reeves Morgan and his friends, and uh, never got the hard breaks they wanted, and they see this as a way of creating a huge row with the European Union, uh, and potentially creating a trade war with the EU. That suits them domestically, so they can say to their English base, "Oh, this is the EU being bad." towards the UK again, please vote for us. That's Mm. what this is about.
4: Okay, so politically advantageous. Uh, What's in it for the unionist parties? Because uh, going down this road is going to impoverish the people they represent, is it not?
7: Well, absolutely. Now, they may argue back and say that's not the case. But let's be very factual here. It's already on record that the Dairy Council in the north uh, have said that this bill bringing unregulated food ingredients, one of them in the the dairy sector, particularly grain, what that will do at the click of a finger is prevent milk that's uh, on farms in the north being brought south. There's 800 uh, million litres of milk bought by southern uh, companies every single year. Milk tankers collect milk every day. There's other food ingredients. That milk will not be collected. Mm. There is there is at least, Michael, 1,000 dairy farms in the north, at least, where that milk will not be collected. Mm. Those farms are out of business. Mm. The rest of the farms who supply milk to northern suppliers, and that milk is turned into yoghurt and butter and cheese. Over 30% of that is sold where? It's sold in the European Union. Mm. But this is not just specific to the agriculture sector. Pharmaceutical sector has its same nightmare. Um, the the manufacturing sector there's a big manufacturing base throughout Toronto of of, of engineering components and in many cases this will not be uh, a regulator from the Irish government or from the EU who will say stop, it will be the customer who buys these products so international buyers of Irish food and of Irish products will look at this and go whoa, can we trust that the components and the ingredients in what we're buying uh, are unregulated or regulated mm. EU standards, and uh, they would uh, say no.
4: Uh, and it'll have to be policed. And this brings Correct. us to brings us to border checks.
7: Correct. And, you know, I, I know because we keep up contact with people in the European Union. I also farm part time. And uh, as my EU contact told me recently, you know, you farm. I, he knows that I have no animals on the southern side. But he says, for example, if you did, you would not be allowed to bring meal from the north into the south for fear that that um, had uh, something in it that was not of EU standards. So you, you can very simply see where spot checks would have to occur. Then when spot checks occur, then other checks have to occur. This border, as we know, 300 miles long. We have 300 crossings and over 40 million vehicles cross this border every year. It's a very fluid, very open border. And the trick of the protocol, and we lobbied extensively for this, was to allow checks at the ports and airports so that we, every one of us who live on this island, can travel around this island freely. And goods can travel across this island and across that border freely. This bill puts that at huge risk.
4: Mm. As does uh, the coronation of Liz Truss.
7: Yes, and the ERG. And you know, l- listen. In many ways, you know, we can we just look upon what goes on in English politics. But what's what we find unbelievable is that we have the political leaders here who are cheerleading this bill Mm. and they know the consequence of this bill. They know the consequence of business and they know the consequence that that would mean um, for checks along the border and all of the unravelling of the the positive economic uh, outcome that we have had with the protocol will be gone at the click of
4: a finger. Okay, but how concerned are you uh, about Liz Truss becoming uh, the leader of uh, the Conservative Party? Is it a a case when it comes to Boris Johnson, better the devil you know, because Boris Johnson uh, said the Brexit deal and the Northern Ireland Protocol with it uh, were fantastic deals, uh, although he reneged on the deal uh, and so forth. Liz Truss is far more straightforward, is she not, in that she fully supports Uh, abolishing the protocol.
7: Yes, I suppose maybe she is to a degree more honest than Boris Johnson, because clearly we couldn't trust anything Boris Johnson said. But, you know, set that aside. This is a car crash that we can see about to happen. You know, some of these lobby organisations are pinning their hopes that the House of Lords will amend this legislation and dilute it and make it not as bad. She's going to use what's called the Parliament Act and do away with those amendments, and um, she wants to bring the bill in as is. Mm. And you know, it's, it's our job, A, to make people aware of that, and we will be putting serious pressure mm. on, on political parties in Ireland and on the European Commission
4: to stand to, up here. To, to, to do what, Damien? Because I, I think that is the point that you're making this week, that regardless of what people might think, they may have a, a misunderstanding that the House of Lords will be able to block this. You believe that List Trust will ram this through. So if that's the case, are we helpless or what can be done? And what would you like political parties here to be doing?
7: Well, I think we we need a big dose of reality um, here of, of what potentially we're looking at. Um, you know, we have to also say this is bully tactics by the British government. They are breaking international law quite deliberately and quite openly. And we have said um, to the political parties here and we're saying to the EU Commission, how do we counter that? And it, if this goes to a trade war, we have said, repeatedly for a long time that the EU commission needs to come out with the backing of the member states and say right if you do this here's the consequences so you know and maybe create that debate within English politics to say whoa what we're about to do here will have for example a 20% tariff on the UK car industry mm. you know that, unfortunately that's where we're headed mm.
4: Yeah, well, they're already facing into the abyss, it it seems, with uh, the cost of living inflation is through the roof here, but uh, all the worse there, and this trade war could compound that.
7: It could, Um, but you see, domestically, um, people who want to have a hard Brexit and who want to um, sell that to a Tory base are looking to um, establish that base going forward into the next election. Um, but certainly people here on the island and our politicians on the island need to be need to be very strong and they need to be open and honest and say here is the consequences of what we're looking at people in the unionist community that I talk to I've been on farms recently with people from unionist tradition and and they tell me oh it'll be all right on the night this is not going to happen and and they need to hear from the Irish government and people in, uh, involved in the regulatory regime here exactly are the consequences of what will happen if this bill is, is put through in terms of moving uh, foodstuffs, food ingredients, and, and that kind of thing around the island of Ireland, and access to the European market.
4: Okay, well... We've been talking about this uh, for, what is it now, six far, years?
7: Far too long. Six years. <laughs> Since the autumn of 2016 we yeah, started
4: it. Yeah, now. it really is hard to believe. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, the concerns are just uh, as great. Damien, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Damien McGinnity is uh, the coordinator with Border Communities Against Brexit.
1: Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM.
4: Well, schools will start returning next week as uh, the summer draws uh, to an end. And with uh, the return of the schools, uh, you'll start seeing school wardens again for the first time in a couple of months. Uh, and indeed, if you come across a school warden next week and don't stop, you could find yourself fined €160 Euro, double what the existing fine is. Uh, The Minister of State at the Department of Transport, Hildegard Nocton, says she intends to increase uh, the fine to that extent. Let's speak to Michael Rowland, who's uh, the Director of Road Safety, Driver Education and Research with uh, the Road Safety Authority. Good morning to you, Michael, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Is there a need for a fine at all, let alone one of €160? I I mean, uh, I'm sure most people, or if not everybody, stop for the school warden?
8: Yeah, um, most people do, Michael, but at the same time, I think it's an important message to send out, uh, especially to motorists, because we do hear anecdotally that uh, some motorists do um, do, or don't uh, obey the the, the school warden. Um, So I suppose for us, it's a proactive move. It's it's Mm. about ensuring that people are, are aware that these school wardens are, are vulnerable road users themselves, but they're also protecting our most vulnerable young citizens. Um, and they're on the roads at the most dangerous times, when mm. traffic is heavy, morning rush hour, afternoon, evening rush hours. Yeah, so
4: people, people, are, people are rushing to get to work. Uh, I take it, that's exactly. the problem. If uh, yeah. you have somebody who doesn't have the patience to stop for the school warden, that's shocking though, isn't it?
8: It is. It it is a concern, but you know, at the same time, um, most I I, I would emphasise that most motorists do obey the orders, or you know, what the school warden asks them to do by stopping. But it's to ensure that everybody is aware, and just to draw attention that these school wardens are protecting our most vulnerable citizens, and to ensure that you know motorists do Mm. obey the school warden. Yeah, it's extremely important. I suppose this time of year, we we're seeing. You know, a a huge increase in the amount of traffic uh, around schools, Uh, Mm. kids returning to schools, parents dropping them off, but also, um, you know, with the move to active travel, we're going to see more children cycling, walking, scooting to schools. So it's an opportunity, you know, to to remind all road users, Mm. uh, in particular motorists, to be aware of uh, these these children returning to school. Well, Uh, you'd
4: need eyes in the back of your head, really, wouldn't you, when uh, the schools are, are back? But if somebody ignores the school warden, it means they're knowingly running the risk of running children over.
8: They are, um, they, they are, and I suppose that's, that's the intention of our back to school campaign is to remind those road users, you know, sometimes complacency can set in, but to remind those drivers that, you know, the, 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 the most vulnerable are on our roads and that they need to take heed and to be aware, be it obeying the school warden, um, but also taking other proactive measures like mm. slowing down, being extra vigilant around schools, um, especially at this time of year. You know, mm. children get excited, and, you know, once we, they, they, the, your parents may have had the chat with them about returning to school and returning and the, the road safety chat. We need to ensure that other road users are, are aware of those kids as they return to school, mm-hmm. as they use our streets, our footpaths, yeah. etc.
4: And your back to school campaign uh, targets uh, motorists uh, and asks them to be aware, but also the students themselves and asks them uh, to think uh, about uh, staying safe on the roads.
7: Yeah, we, we
8: have, a, it's a multi-passage campaign, Michael, so we have a school pack that goes out to every school in the country, and in that school pack there is a high visibility best for every child starting school. But we also have other resources like going uh, to school leaflets uh, for junior infants. Uh, entering education so that the parents can use that resource to teach their children mm-hmm. about road safety to remind them about road safety and we also have a, a other other material like reflective strips that the kids can use to put on their bags their school bags uh, to make them more conspicuous um, to make them more visible when they're using the roads mm-hmm. and we, we have other measures such as an educational newsletter for our mm-hmm. teachers
4: and, and that, that comes in a, a pack schools just have to uh, uh, apply to the RSA for that uh, if they want those packs for the schools and then you have a a learning portal as part of that the Safe Cross Code uh, remains an important piece of education for the children
8: Absolutely so, look, we're, we're delighted to, to launch our learning portal. It's, it's an e-learning platform. It's innovative. It's something we, we started during COVID. Um, but essentially what it does is it provides an interactive, fun experience for children. Um, but it allows us, we, we have road safety education officers throughout the country, mm. but it allows our road safety education officers to have a virtual presence in the classroom with the teacher and with the children and to take them through a range of education resources we have, Especially tailored for particular age groups.
4: Okay. Um, do, you so think, do, you, do you think do you think do you think young people um, are uh, as road safety aware as they once were, or is it just that I'm getting old? Because it, it seems to me that a, a lot of young people walk out on the road uh, without looking, or walk out on the road and feel that if they put their foot out onto the road that they have the right of way and don't take into consideration the fact that if a motor car runs them over, uh, they'll be the big loser.
8: Yeah, I, I I think children their their perception of speed and uh, can be different from those uh, more mature adults who, who can calculate and you can you know factor in the speed of the car coming towards them. So I think for us the important thing is to keep educating the children uh, so that they you know learn those good habits. We have a saying in the road safety authority, you know, um, you know. Um, what you learn young lasts a lifetime so um, we want to instill those road safety messages in the kids at this particular age where they're really receptive to taking on those road safety messages yeah. but regardless uh, we can't assign responsibility to the, to the children we as mature road users need to be vigilant need to be on the lookout
4: for children because invariably kids will make mistakes OK well everybody uh, should be aware the schools will be back next week Michael thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today Michael Roland is uh, the Director of Road Safety, Driver Education and Research with uh, the Road Safety Authority. I I still can't get over the fact that people would ignore the traffic warden and would continue to drive knowingly Uh, running the risk of running children down. I don't know what you think about that, but an 80 euro fine would seem inadequate. 160 euro would seem inadequate to me. I think uh, it probably would be more appropriate to put people like that off the road for a year or permanently, perhaps. Uh, I'm not sure if you want to share your thoughts on that with us, but if you do or anything else, as always, we'd love to hear from you.
1: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM.
4: FM. I don't know if you've ever been to visit us here at the studios of LMFM, uh, but James in Drogheda did that yesterday, and he's texting me today saying that when he was pulling out of the car park here, uh, that a pregnant woman was going by the gate on a knee scooter. Uh, And he says that it's only by the grace of God that she didn't hit the front of my car. Oh, God. Uh, I think anybody who's working here who has visited uh, the station uh, would relate to that, James. It can be a kind of a a blind spot and you do need to edge out, but it's exactly... The kind of a problem that people have been complaining about with the e-scooters and the danger that pu- people are sometimes putting themselves in by using the e-scooters uh, because they're not uh, uh, aware that something can come out of somewhere like a, a car out of a, a, a car park like that. Um, it is kind of blind or a, a person coming out of a house. Uh, you see a lot of houses uh, that the doors open onto the footpath, people driving e-scooters on the footpath. Uh, and there is an accident waiting to happen thanks uh James andndrada for your text to, to the program uh we'd uh, another text uh then uh, that uh, came to us uh from Pat Cusick. I uh, hope you're doing well pat uh, pat uh, was a, a victim of Michael Shine. He was texting us a, a, about uh, the decision of the DPP not to prosecute or to um, uh, take charges uh, uh, on any of uh, the other cases. Uh, he says uh, it's worth looking at a, a review that was done uh, many years ago by Mary Harney when she was uh, the Minister for Health. He says... Uh, perhaps uh, they could release that review. Now we'll uh, look into that for you Pat uh, and uh, try to get back to some of uh, the other issues uh, that uh, you've raised in your message with us and we hope that you're well by the way and thank you indeed uh, always good to hear from you Pat Cusack. Now let's uh, talk uh, about trains. Uh, there's been a huge reduction in uh, the cost of public transport a 20% reduction uh, to encourage people to use public transport. Fine Gael Senator John McGowan uh, believes that should be extended to car parking at train stations, he's on the line. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the yeah, programme this morning. Uh, uh, to, 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 to what extent should parking costs be reduced?
9: Yeah, well, I suppose the reason I'm calling for it first before I touch on that is just as you're touching it yourself, it's because of the increase in the cost of li- living that's uh, happening across the country. Uh, people are starting to feel that pinch in one way or another. And I believe that commuters are particularly vulnerable when it comes to the added on costs so in line with the public um, transport reductions like you mentioned there I think it would also make sense to either reduce or temporarily cease the parking charges at our train stations and the reason why I want to do that is twofold we want to entice people back onto public transport Uh, that's why we reduce the fares but at the same time there's still a charge on parking in car parks. Uh, And again, I think that cost may deter people from having to use them. And I suppose my request is clear. I believe that Irish Rail should strive to try and reduce the financial burden on commuters, uh, purely because both you and I, Michael, we have no idea what the financial challenges people are facing behind closed doors. And we should be doing everything, no matter how small it may seem, to try and lessen that financial burden.
0: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with quince. go to quince.com/ pack for free shipping and 365 day returns.
9: Uh, that the cost of living crisis is having on people. So
4: okay, so how, how much should the government subvent uh, road air in, in terms of reducing uh, these charges by?
9: Yeah, well, let's look at the cost like so if you take so just before I came on your show, I did a bit of research this morning so I checked Irish Rail this morning. So, for example, a return train ticket from the dock to Dublin is going to cost you €25.50 today. So whether you're travelling three or five days a week, that cost will range between €76.50 to €127.50. That's with the 20% reduction in public transport. So in the dock, add on an extra, or draw it for that matter, add on an extra €350 Euro a day for parking, €9 Euro a week or €30 Euro monthly, mm. um, and those costs begin to creep up. And it's not just...
4: Yeah, but you're asking be... Aaron to give up that money. Uh, so what will they do instead? Uh, I presume you're suggesting that the government will subvent it, that the government will pay the difference.
9: I, I think we should look at all aspects of it. So what I'm... Well, what other aspects is, are, not, are there of it? Yeah, so I'll I, I just get to the point now. So you're, you're asking me what should we do in that respect. I'm not saying we should do this long term. I'm not saying we should do it for whatever stage. The government is already making a lot of financial interventions right across this country in every aspect of financial society. We're already doing that. And I don't think it will be too much more difficult for the government to step in and look at something like this and discuss it with Irish Rail to see okay. what they can or can't do. So, so,
4: that, so the government should pay
9: for it? Um, I definitely think the government should enter into a conversation uh, with Irish Rail about how we can either reduce or cease. OK, so, 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 you be, you, so
4: you don't. So you, you. believe the government is not doing enough to encourage people to use <coughs> public transport. Uh, that makes you sound like a, an oppo- opposition spokesperson.
9: Uh, no, absolutely not. I totally disagree with you there. I think the government is doing incredible work, particularly with the reduction. But do you believe they could do more? Uh, I believe there's always space to do more and this is just another small example of where I'm looking at it to say we've already done a huge amount with reducing the public fares by 20% and 50% but here's another grey area that perhaps we've not looked at properly or that perhaps we could do a bit more okay. in, and the parking is one and it's not just it's not just I'm not being parochial about Dundalk or drawhead, it's not just loud. when you look did, at a wider did,
4: aspect wh- What did Leo Radker say to your proposal?
9: Uh, I haven't spoken to Leo about okay, it there's right, only, yeah. only something I'm pushing out myself I'm writing to um I'm writing mm. to Irish Rail today to try and seek a meeting with them. But you, you have access
4: it. to the Tawnish uh, and uh, uh, as a consequence you have access uh, to the uh, Minister for Transport. Uh, would that not be the way to do it rather than making populist uh, suggestions?
9: No, I don't think it is populist at all I, I, and if, if by all means accuse me of populism if i'm trying to find out of another way to uh, lessen the financial burden on commuters uh, i've no issue with that tag been added to me because it's commuters who have an extra added on cost like everybody else well, we don't know so what I'm those costs
4: are um, you, you, you haven't got a costing on it um, a, a, and that would be one way of making the proposal to say that uh, it'll cost 10 million and ask the government to give a, a 10 million to road rodaron or ask Road rodaron to run it a, a loss and act as a, a charity
9: well, this is it, you see, but it's important to start having this conversation. And I think that's what's important about the role that I have. It's to try and put forward ideas, whether you're putting forward those ideas to Irish Water or to Leo Varadkar or to the government, as you said. Mm-hmm. It's about using that platform to put forward ideas that will help make people's mm-hmm. lives that bit better. So that, sure, uh, sure, 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 couldn't you order?
4: cycle up to the train station
9: or walk? Well, actually, yeah, that's a fair point. But I, I commuted on the train for over five years. Now, you know, take this with a pinch of salt, because what I'm going to tell you is only anecdotal evidence. But it's what I saw for five years the vast majority of people are getting on that train from the Dundalk train station. They're coming from places like Carkmacross, Talonstown, Live Village, Castle Bellingham. They're coming from places even just on the hinterland of Yeah, but should you get town. a bus
4: from Castle Bellingham into Dundalk?
9: Well, Michael, you know, you say that to somebody who's trying to get to Dublin on a train which takes an hour, um, to get to work and then you tell them to get a bus at the same time. Do you know what I mean? I don't think Okay, so it.
4: the buses yes. aren't good enough. Is that a, a problem for the government?
9: No, 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 not none whatsoever, Michael. I'm trying to trying to be very, very clear in what I'm trying to well, suggest
4: here. I'm a bit lost. Uh, I mean, surely you should be able to get a bus from Castle time. Bellingham to Dundalk uh,
9: well, yeah, fairly
4: easily if you want to get the train.
9: Yeah, but like, if you look at it, like, if you look at the train times going from Dundalk in the morning and not to be getting down into the weeds about mm. train times, yeah. um, I don't know what the bus time travel is to go from Castle Bellingham to Dundalk. But
4: OK, but you're suggesting that, that the public bus service is, is inadequate. That's a failing on the part of the government no, and that the, the cost of parking I'm and train stations is too expensive. That's a failing I, of government. You, that doesn't I, sound like a government spokesperson am, at all.
9: I am... Ab- no, absolutely not. I am not... Absolutely not... Am I one of those politicians who tries to be in government and try and be in opposition at the same time? Uh, As you said earlier on today, I think the government are doing incredible work with reducing the cost of living crisis right across this country. Today we're talking about transport. We're doing that. And the suggestion that I'm putting forward today is a way that we can do it with car parking charges. Um, And I think it's something that should be looked at. I think it's a conversation and it's a conversation that I'm happy to start at the same time. And it's something that I want to continue on as a conversation when the Senate comes back in September, when I can speak to my party leader in person about it, and when I can hopefully get a meeting with Irish Whale to test out. And if it's not feasible, that's fine. There's no problem. But what I want to do is test the waters with it. I want to see if it's feasible, and if it can reduce the cost of commuters, all the better.
4: Okay. Did I say that the government was doing incredible work? No, <laughs> Did I you? That, Mike. Oh, you didn't say that. Okay. I said that. <laughs> okay, right. I thought I'd gone no, mad they, there for a minute. No, you
9: hadn't.
4: Not that they aren't, I just don't remember saying that. Okay, alright. Uh, uh, well, I, I, I think a, a lot of people would like the suggestion anyway, uh, as to whether it's viable or, or not, uh, I think probably remains uh, to be seen. Uh, and uh, uh, as you say, you'll be raising this uh, when uh, the Parliamentary Party uh, resume. Uh, the parliamentary party meetings resume uh, John McGahn uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today John McGann, the a uh, Fine Gael Senator Michael,
1: Michael Reid on, on
4: LMFM FM. Well the Fianna Fáil Minister of State Robert Troy went missing in action for a, a number of weeks but he had the full support of his party leader and uh, the thornish uh, in terms of giving a full explanation about his property portfolio and his business interests but the questions kept coming. Then Robert Troy spoke to RTE's News at One and I think we can hear a little bit of what he said to Brian Dobson on that programme yesterday.
5: I'm embarrassed that I got it so wrong uh, and that I needed such a comprehensive uh, amendment to the statement of members' interests. And the root of the issue here is that I misinterpreted the requirements. I was wrongly uh, under the impression that I only needed to declare uh, the interest that I held on the 31st of December of a particular year, not the, on an annualized basis.
4: Right, Uh, that's uh, Robert Troy speaking to Brian Dobson on RTE's News at 1 yesterday let's speak to Paul Murphy people before profit TD for Dublin South West now and Paul Murphy you've been pursuing uh, the questions uh, vigorously over the last number of weeks and I think at this stage uh, it's the end of the line as far as you're concerned and you believe uh, that the minister should resign
6: Um, yes and I do but I think even if we take his best case kind of scenario, his version of the story, even then you have a situation when a minister has repeatedly, year after year, broken the ethics legislation, on four occasions failed to declare property owned, three occasions failed to declare directorships that he had, and two occasions failed to declare contracts that he had, rather contracts with the council. Uh, and he broke the Residential Tenancies Act, which requires landlords to register properties with um, the RTB, um, and that's very clearly the landlord's responsibility. You can't offload that onto an agent.
4: Or, so, or if you don't, failure to do so uh, could result in a criminal conviction and a fine of up to four thousand euro or six months imprisonment.
6: It, exactly. So these aren't minor things. Um, so, like again, like even if you accept. You know, fully his bona fides. There's nothing dishonest about what he's done, etc. Even if he's had all of that, where he is like very, very deeply incompetent, and um, where he attempted to say yesterday on the radio, well you know, basically he didn't didn't put in he didn't put in the property because he thought you only have to put in what's on the the property that you would own on the last day of a given year. But, like, on every single page of the form, it makes it explicit at any time in the previous year, i.e. from the 1st of January to the 31st of December. And this wasn't a, a once-off thing. This happened year after year that he didn't fill out these forms uh, correctly. So I, I don't, really don't see how he can remain in place when you have a situation when he was personally profiting from the housing crisis, from the failure of the government to build public housing, instead... Engaging in these HAP schemes, RAS schemes. I mean, he currently has five HAP tenants, according to what he said, told to Orsi yesterday. He has one RAS uh, contract. These are various schemes whereby the state is paying private landlords. Um, and in all of that, you know, with his 11 properties now, he didn't declare these at a time that he was pushing in the DAW to be giving even more money to private landlords through these schemes which is precisely why we have this, this ethics legislation in the first place and the requirement to declare. So I, I just don't see how he's currently still in place. I don't see how he's getting a clean bill of health from both Varadkar, who described him as top class, and the Alt-Martin, yeah. who said it was a misunderstanding The Greek secretary said nothing about it.
4: OK, do we know uh, if he was issued with a, a fine? Um, because that's very clear, the legislation um, from or in relation to the Residential Tenancies Board, the RTB, if you don't register, um, you face a, a criminal conviction and a fine of up to €4,000 or six months of imprisonment. Uh, do we know if, if uh, there was any action against the minister in respect of the property that he was renting from November of last year, which wasn't registered up until recently, and these questions became an issue for him?
6: Um, we, we don't know for certain, but it certainly doesn't seem like he has faced any fine or the RTB has done anything about it yet. I mean, I have written to the RTB asking, complaining about the fact that he, he wasn't registered and asking them to investigate it. So we'll see what they do. I mean, something interesting yesterday on the radio, he was asked, "So when, when did you register this property? He said, oh, August, 2022. The August 2022. after August 2022 is right now. And like you say, he only registered it when this controversy, or it's very extremely likely that he only registered it when this controversy uh, emerged. Mm. So, you know, the talk of being embarrassed and very sorry and so on, we only know any of this because of the reporting of the ditch, first of all, and then followed up by other journalists. Otherwise, he'd be continuing, presumably, not having registered his property, not having registered his directorship, mm. not having registered his RAS contract, not having registered his landlord, his tenancy, um, and, and continuing to speak on these matters without revealing that he is you know, a multiple, multiple landlord.
4: And the reason landlords have to register is uh, well, many, many-fold, but uh, one uh, is because of the housing crisis and to make sure uh, that everything is above board and uh, that the standards uh, that should be met are met, uh, and that tenants have
6: rights. Exactly. And so people, so people can know when they see his actions or his speeches in the doll, okay, he also has this interest. It doesn't mean that's the only reason he's speaking, but people have to have, have the right to be aware of it. So on the, the last day of voting of the Dáil, Robert Troy, not not alone, together with his government colleagues, um, voted down people for profits, rent reduction bill. has voted down, you know, um, things that would reduce rents and that would increase rights for tenants on multiple occasions. And people have a right to know while he's doing that, that this guy is in receipt of you know, significant amounts of state money through the HAP scheme, through the RAV scheme, um, you know, so people can form a judgment on yeah. that. Okay. Um, and that's that contract, for example. So while well, his defense in terms of the property Declarations is that what he did declare the, most of the properties at some year and he didn't declare them just when he didn't own them on the 31st of December. In relation to the RAL contracts, they, they clearly, from what he said, spanned over multiple years and he never declared them, even though there's a space in the form for contracts with public bodies. It's very clear that you are meant to register those things. And for me, that's the most significant of, of all of his admissions.
4: Okay. The Irish Independent then is uh, reporting today on a, a property in Dublin. Uh, that was investigated for alleged unauthorised development. Uh, the paper says uh, that Dublin City Council investigated the construction of fire escape stairs at the back of this property uh, and that that uh, fire escape was not authorised. And it also says that the same property doesn't have a fire
6: certificate. Yeah, and I think this is potentially where the reporting will go next, because again, if people heard Robert Troy's interview yesterday, he was asked explicitly about whether all his properties had the necessary fire safety certificates and so on, and he said they did. Whereas this reporting in the Independent and yesterday a similar story in the on the Ditch website say that he does require fire safety certificates for the use from six or seven bed sits to three or four apartments, as far as I, I recall. And yes, that would doing so would require a new fire safety certificate to say that you know, after work has been done, it's fire safe, and that there is no such fire safety certificate. He he obviously disputes that. um, So we'll see now what he says. I mean, I think his intention, according to what he's telling the media, is that well, he's answered everything fully now, and he's not going to answer anything else until until the doll comes back in three weeks. But I'm not sure that will be sustainable, particularly with revelations
4: about things like this. Okay, when the doll comes back in three weeks it's got a a lot of work to do and this is an awful distraction, isn't
6: it? It is. Um, I think the government will not be happy about it because it's, you know, the the, the biggest crisis in this country is the housing crisis and there is perception, which is correct in my opinion, that this government is is ruling in the interest of landlords and is made up of, of landlords. And then to have in the news, day after day, a minister who has 11 properties, like flipping properties within months, making significant amounts of money, benefiting from half contracts, RAV contracts with the state, I presume that is not the sort of attention and image that the government uh, wants to have. Um, but for whatever reason, so far, they're continuing mm-hmm. to, to stick with him. So if, if he is still in place in three weeks, when there's all this past, like, he'll have to. I mean, I, he might try and wriggle out of it, but he said he will face all questioning and so on. So, if again, if he's in place, there'll have to be a full all session in the interview to question all these things, to answer questions, and to see what what people make of his his answers.
4: Okay, uh, were you surprised at the report in, in the Irish Times today? Eighty TDs uh, are landlords.
6: I'm not surprised. Um, the, I mean, the sort of thing. The, I think the ratio of Government TDs who are landlords or multiple property owners is even higher than into in the doll in general, and mm. um, that is obviously like wildly disproportionate to society at large. There's some like ten times more landlords in the doll than there is. In society as far as I've you're ten times more likely to be a landlord if you're a TD. And well, I think h-
4: half the population are landlords. The, the ha- half the half the TDs, half the population of the doll are, are landlords. Uh, is it a surprise, or, or uh, is that uh, jumping uh, the gun and making silly assumptions to say that uh, it's no surprise that we have a housing crisis in this country if half the legislators in this country are landlords?
6: No, I, I think there's a relationship. I, I think there's a problem. Um, landlords vote in the doll on measures that would, you know, benefit tenants and in some, some sense um, reduce profits of, of landlords. Because at the moment, I know some landlords have it, have it hard, but on the whole landlords are doing very well, big corporate landlords in particular. Um, so I think there is a real conflict of interest there. I don't think these people have voted on measures affecting uh, landlords but obviously they continue to do so and in my opinion the Dáil continues to vote down measures that would actually uh, somewhat address the, the housing crisis from the point of view of the interest of, of renters.
4: And th- There's nothing wrong with being a landlord. Uh, is there something wrong with a, a TD being a landlord? Should there be some sort of prohibition on that?
6: Um, I, I think problem arises when they're then voting on these things that you know and um, if, if Robert Troy had voted in favor of our rent reduction bill which would see rents reduced right across the country he would lose money in his pocket and um, that's a bit like asking turkeys to vote for christmas so i think that's the problem i think the landlords and the doles should recuse themselves from voting whenever we're dealing with matters like that that would directly financially uh, impact them.
4: Okay. Uh, the argument has been made, uh, I think that if you were to introduce a measure like that, uh, there'd be no end to it. Um, there's a, an awful lot of farmers in, in the Dáil, uh, and they couldn't vote then on any issue relating to that sector.
6: Yeah, but I think we're dealing with a definite, you know, small minority in society. Um, I think it's something like 1 in 20 people in society at large are, are landlords quite um, bought mm. to all our landlords and yeah. um, so I, I i and you are very very much dealing with direct financial uh interest with in the housing crisis but i think it is appropriate to have something like that i mean similarly if you have a situation where something related to, let's say pubs mm. and tds are, are owners of pubs again mm. i think it will be appropriate i presume there's not as many and um, it will be appropriate for them to
4: Okay, I think <laughs> Paul Murphy was uh, going to suggest that uh, publicans who are TD shouldn't vote on anything to do with uh, the licensed uh, trade, uh, but we've lost the line. Unfortunately, our thanks to Paul Murphy, People Before Profit TD for Dublin Southwest
1: michael Reed, Reed
4: on, on lmfm yeah, the Irish independent reports uh, today that Louth County council has spent more than 950 thousand euro cleaning up toxic sludge left behind by fuel smugglers over the last four years this is since the beginning of 2019 maybe not too much of a, a surprise and a million euro is a, a lot of money and there's no doubt of it about that uh, but I suppose in this neck of the woods you'd be sort of accustomed to the council having to clean up after fuel launderers but what is interesting is that I think it's clear from the figures in the paper today that fuel laundering is on the increase Uh, I'm sure Loud County Council could have done with that million euro as I say uh, but uh, it could be a lot more than that in the coming years uh, because last year according to the Irish Independent, the bill was 300,000. So over four years, that would be 1.2 million instead of the 1 million or the 950,000 euro. Uh, That would be uh, for 300,000. And this year, 300,000 for the first six months of the year. And that would bring it up to 2.4 million. Uh, So you can see that there's more uh, fuel laundering or at least more cleaning up after the uh, smugglers. uh, um, But whether uh, that uh, continues... Uh, is another day's work. It's probably the case because they do seem to have broken the code uh, on the marker. Let's uh, speak now to local councillor Sinn Féin's Kevin Meenan, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Kevin, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. This has been a scourge uh, for many reasons, uh, the cost involved but also the environmental consequences uh, of the sludge and how it's dumped.
10: Thanks Michael for having, you on, having me on. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's been a thorn in the side for for the communities and and the council for a number of years uh, in this neck of the woods. And uh, it uh, it is worrying that it seems to be uh, back on the increase as well I suppose it could people's fears as well that it could get a lot worse because of obviously with the issues around fuel at the moment and uh, and then again the whole thing of, of it's an accident waiting to happen in terms of a larger scale case of some type of spillage. We've been lucky so far that they have been dumped in a manner which hasn't compromised uh, the case Or in, in fact there's been a couple of cases where it has been on a smaller scale but we, we could be looking at a, a a massive disaster in terms of uh, to the environment, if one these, if if it's dumped in the wrong location or it's compromised, or and then you're into a, a massive environment. this environmental vandalism, mm. and, and it's as I say, it's, it's costing the country. Whereas the county council get this money uh, refunded back. In, in terms of the it's, it, in terms of the overall exchequer, like it's, uh, somebody has to pay for it somewhere down mm. the line. Well, that's we, money that could be near Mark, maybe for something else locally here. Well,
4: that's it. Uh, somebody might be getting cheap fuel, but we're all paying for it. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, yeah.
10: And, and again, it's uh, I, I, I was talking to our, our TD, Rory Mark, who had done the meeting recently with Revenue in terms of they are happy enough that they seem to have stopped it going to the forecourt. So the issue they seem to be thinking is that this is illegal, unofficial pumps that people are using. So I would appeal if that is the case for people not to be using them and and to report such uh, illegal pumps because Mm -hmm. uh, this is contributing directly to to this uh, and may cause uh, an environmental disaster.
4: Yeah, well, it, it may very well cause an environmental disaster and that could be fish kills or compromising drinking water.
10: Yeah, and our drinking water, as you know at the moment, is... It's dreadful, and that's a separate issue in terms of that. But we, we don't need, I was going to say, we don't need that to get any worse, but I'm sort of thinking good to get any worse. But uh, in terms of, of a major, say, public health care, then you're at a massive amount of, of, of clean-up and and uh, people's lives put on hold in terms of you know, having to have their water from different locations or, or various things I like this. So, and, and And these people who are making the money off that don't care about that. So, uh, I, I, and again, people might be thinking they're getting a quick deal in terms of of, uh, of some type of, of cheaper fuel, yeah. but you're like you impacting on the environment. You're overall uh, is, is contri- contributing to uh, environmental vandalism.
4: Mm. Well, it could be much more serious for you personally uh, because your engine can seize by using this stuff.
10: That's that's other thing too, as well as to say. These things are like anything that's sold to you illegally. There's no quality control in terms of or anything like they got. So you're at the of because you've no refund if you want to go back to these people to, to tell them that your car is seized. They're not going to be interested in any of that. Mm. And then also the fact of your calculus as well. You've, you've you have a major fine on your hands too. So the, and again reports like these when they come out in the paper for good because it shines a light on this and it's good that we were having this conversation today to highlight the fact. Because if, if it's not highlighted and uh, it continues to grow, we continue to pay for the cost of this and also increasing the chances of... of uh, and, and people, this will only flourish if people, when people buy it. So if people stop buying it, it's like anything, it's, a, it's like a drug trade. You, you have to sometimes look at the, the need for this. And if people start looking at where they're, what, they're contri- what they're contributing mm-hmm. to and, and, and make a thoughtful decision on that, you know impact on the people who are doing it
4: yeah and what if they don't which is uh, the probable uh, eventuality uh, because uh, that that could even become even more probable because um, there's an expert group uh, that have reported to the government, uh, there's a story about this, I mentioned earlier on in the programme uh, today uh, the Energy Security Emergency Group, uh, a confidential briefing note uh, part of it published in uh, the Irish Times today about a worst case scenario because of the war in Ukraine that if there was a 50 to 100% supply reduction of diesel into the country, what that might mean and how uh, the government could react to what could be uh, civil disorder uh, and how they may maintain societal function and civil order uh, because that would be at risk Um, and I suppose that in itself should be raising alarm bells because uh, even if that's a worst case scenario scenario that we don't ever have to really contemplate, uh, you are looking at shortages and you are looking at price increases.
10: Sorry, uh, yeah, yeah, oh, uh, 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 definitely. And, and as I say, like, who knows what the future holds in terms of, of what's going to happen on a worldwide scale in terms of of the flow of of, of uh, fuel to the, to this country. And uh, as I say, people are aware and we have to look at the fact that people are engaged, people are are, are now enduring sort of fuel poverty as well as food poverty. So, and, and in some cases, it's. Uh, People will automatically turn to turn to getting the, the, saving themselves a few pounds by, by mm. doing things like this. But uh, ultimately, it's going to pay. You, you, we pay in the long run through our taxes and everything else. And these people don't contribute in order to society. Normally, the people who are who are doing this are are uh, not in terms of uh, putting their money through legally or anything like that. So. Mm. The, the
4: the other problem with all of this, uh, of course, is that people are very reluctant to report if somebody if they know of somebody who's laundering diesel, uh, and probably with good reason.
10: Oh yeah, they, they would be fearful in, in terms of, of the course, and, and that's across wider society too. It's, it's an issue that we would see here locally in terms of, of anything when you're trying to get people to report. You need to have confidence in, in, in uh, confidence in the powers that are going to prosecute, and the, and also confidence. In the in the power that we're going to protect you as well from from anyone that you actually uh, implicate in this. So and and but it doesn't have to be that. It can it can be through other means in terms of of notifying through uh, through some type of confidential line or whatever that we can try and stamp this try and stop this illegal trade out because it's not. It's not uh, benefiting society. Say it's, 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 it's you, you, people, and, and we probably have to look at maybe other whole scale measures in terms of of how we look at in terms of there is a the worst case now. How we can try and, and stop people from turning to illegal agents like this, who are going to be uh, who are going to be absolutely making a fortune, and then what are other people then get involved in that trade because there's a, there's a, there's there's money to be made mm-hmm. in it. So. That, that's our issue. We, we see that replicated with the drugs trade as well because there's so much demand for it. Mm. So therefore there's so many more there's so many more people dealing. Yeah. It's not that the, the same amount of dealers are getting yeah. the fact, There's so many more dealers are, are getting involved. And then that's harder to track down. That's harder to police when you have so many different people at it.
4: Yeah, well, I, I don't know, They've uh, been laundering diesel for uh, as long as any of us can remember and probably will be. Uh, for uh, as long uh, as any of us live uh, because uh, they had uh, changed the marker uh, uh, but they seem to have broken the code on that and they seem to be able to do it uh, again whatever is going on with it.
10: Yeah, as I say, it's a high tech industry now in terms of uh, of the people that they have, have involved and, and people all those it's, it's the same as I say, it. it's, it's like any illegal trade, when <laughs> I mean, whenever the authorities seem to be getting the measure of it, the people have to change their tactics and move on and, and, and try and get things that are, are, are or probably harder to crack. Joe, and, and it's a, a cat-and-mouse game, really. Joe, mm-hmm. you're contingency on the chase, and you're never really getting ahead of it. And you see, we've we probably had a lull for a while, but it seems to be back on the increase in terms of this. And I, say, and I, and I would fear now, going forward, that it's going to be even more of an issue going forward because there'll be a lot more money to be made. There's going to be a lot more people trying to make money from it and because of the fuel situation that we could possibly face we'll have a lot more people trying to avail of legal services like this.
4: Okay, well I suppose uh, as you say if uh, people do know of any laundering that's going on, if uh, they can make uh, that information uh, available to the authorities confidentially it would be in the interest of all of us. Kevin, thank you indeed uh, for joining well, us thank on you. the programme this morning. Shin Feng councillor in Louth, Kevin Meenan.
1: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed
4: on, on LMFM. Uh, who was not uh, disgusted uh, by that violent burglary on uh, the home of a 93-year-old uh, woman in Roscommon uh, and who, on the other hand, is not delighted to hear the news which is carried in uh, the Star today that Una Farrell, 93 years of age, was back behind the counter in her shop hours after that She said she feared for the lives of her two sons after the thieves tied them up before ransacking their home. Uh, She spoke uh, to the paper about uh, the ordeal and she said, I'm grand. Well, as good as as can be expected, I'm coping. I I forgive uh, the people who did it and I hope it never happens to anybody else. Uh, 93 years of age uh, to uh, turn 94 apparently on Monday and she was asked why she was working so soon after the incident and she said, sure, that's what you do when you're able to, isn't it? It's a, a great story uh, after what uh, I'm sure disturbed a, a lot of people. Let's speak to Frank Dillon, Head of Communications with Alone. A very good morning to you Frank and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I'm sure uh, like everybody else you have great admiration for Una Farrell but it, it does uh, call into question uh, the security of people in rural Ireland. Uh, there's reports today that Garda do uh, don't believe that this was a local job uh, that uh, the thieves used the motorway network uh, to carry out this raid which resulted in a, a small amount of cash some cigarettes and some personal jewellery
11: Good morning Michael and thanks very much for the opportunity Yes it, and, and isn't doing a far a, a, an absolutely shining example to us all of how to, how to recover after such a tremendous horrific uh, attack on her and her family and and um, and we wish all our best uh, from alone. But no, it is, unfortunately, it's another blow to anybody trying to live alone um, in rural Ireland. Um, and it's something that, you know, that anything that affects the independence of older people living at home is a concern to, to us. And we've seen it, a few calls come in um, from the area, but also from people throughout rural Ireland who are concerned about, you know, their safety and security in light of this. And. Um, we, we try and help. The loan's always about practical supports and we try and help with whether it's tech, whether we can, you know, connect people better through voice-activated technology or, or sort of smart hub for the house. Mm. Um, and they're the type of supports that we offer.
4: Yeah, uh, and I, I suppose those personal alarms uh, that you quite often hear about are, are very important, especially for elderly people in isolated areas who may be feeling vulnerable.
11: Absolutely and, and there's there's been some great advances in technology and, and we can supply and fit it for people if they need it it's where we can monitor windows and doors. It's usually in relation to somebody leaving the home unannounced, but it can also be in, in, in relation to people, you know, leaving windows open and it can it can monitor that sort of activity as well. But, you know, we, we do encourage people to to be careful when they're at home, secure windows and doors, and if they have access to house, to, to use it even when they're in the house, um, and yeah. for for to prevent as much of this as possible.
4: We hear of stories every now and then. I think uh, when we do hear uh, about them, they knock people's confidence because people uh, look a- a- on um, their circumstance and may perceive themselves to be more vulnerable than. They had taught, let's say, the day previously. Uh, Is there grounds to be fearful? I I
11: don't. I suppose we don't want it overemphasised the fear of it, but we we would like to see. I mean, everybody knows the guards are doing the best job they can. We'd like to see them supported more. We'd like to see more, perhaps twenty four hour guard stations, so we can increase the response times. But I think if people are can take as much precaution as they can. They can prevent this um, as much as possible and Mm -hmm. keep an eye out for each other. I mean, we saw during COVID how crime statistics dropped. It was as much to do with the patrols on the checkpoints, but it was also to do with the fact that we were more in touch with each other and we were keeping an eye out. And I think even it was reported that possibly these burglars were casing an area before they actually came in committed the crime and I think you know it, it's up to us all to keep an eye out our local area and and help the guards as much as we can when, when we see something okay. that is slightly suspicious.
4: Uh, and there's a, a, a lot of steps that you can take uh, and you can advise people on those steps in alone uh, and uh, it'll give great peace of mind if you do that I suppose.
11: Well that's it and that's what it's about, it's about support and it's about we have volunteers that will visit people, you know, because loneliness is is the biggest reason for people to call alone. and we will have befriending supports, we have telephone supports and we offer all that.
4: Okay, Uh, a great service and uh, people can contact ALONE on 0818 and we can make that number available to people as well. Frank, thank you indeed for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Frank Dillon, Head of Communications with ALONE. Now, let me bring you some of the comments. Uh, that uh, have come to us uh, that I didn't get to as yet. Annie in touch to say that need more needs to be done to improve road safety and driver behaviour around schools. She tells us that she dropped her, her nieces and nephews off uh, to school a, a couple of times to help her sister out and she couldn't get over the behaviour of parents. It, it was like a scene out of Game of Thrones. Absolute carnage, parents bullying their way up to the school gates with no regard for the safety of other drivers or the children for that matter alighting from vehicles also they can drop their kids off as close as possible to the school doors she thinks it's a great idea to double the fines if people ignore traffic wardens it might put manners in some of uh, these impatient drivers she says thanks uh, indeed uh, for that Annie it's probably a little bit like mass uh, all the rules go out the window and you can do whatever you like uh, because school's about to start or mass is about to start or whatever the case may be people adopt different attitudes uh, depending on the circumstances Sean in Loud Village rang uh, to say that I, I should know that if you live in Loud Village RD or Tallentstown and if you have a, a job in Dundalk with a, a start time of 8am there's no bus service that will get you to Dundalk in time to start your working day <clears throat> Not at all surprised by that, John. Uh, I suppose that's uh, part of uh, the question. Should there be? Uh, he says, it's ridiculous of me to be blasé and suggest that people can cycle to the train station. Well, I think they could do or walk if they were in Dundalk or get a bus from Lowell Village, as uh, the case may be. And I suppose that's the point. Is, is that where the system is f- failing or falling down? Uh, he, he says, do I really expect people to cycle from RD or Tallentown all the way to the train station in Dundalk? You'd be very fit. Uh, But uh, no, I don't think uh, that that is uh, what uh, I was suggesting. But thank you indeed. Uh, uh, I'm sorry if it uh, came across like that. Paddy Duffy in touch with us about Minister Robert Troy. He says his ignorance of the law is not a defence and it shouldn't be accepted as an excuse. It is his obligation to familiarise himself with the laws. And he says as well, Paddy, that is, that there's an answer to aggravated burglaries, a combination of Mossberg 500 and section, Section 7 of the criminal law. Uh, act uh simples as the meerkat, says Paddy. Thank you indeed, Paddy, uh, for that. Somebody else asking why there is no footpath for children in Emmet Terrace in Navon. Uh, maybe the council could respond to that because we've been asking for one for years. Tony and Trim says, fair play to Robert t- Troy. If you're going to... Uh, do it uh, big, uh, well you may as well because Robert Troy has a a lot of properties and uh, it's clear from the media coverage that he didn't get do anything wrong. Uh, thank you indeed uh, for your message as well. Some WhatsApp messages uh, that have come to us. Uh, one saying if it was a Sinn Fein TD, you'd d- dedicate a whole show to the questions uh, that Robert Troy is being asked. Uh, somebody else saying it's not practical practical to get a bus from Castle Bellingham to Dundalk, uh, then walk to the train station to. Get the early train. It's also 450 a euro, four euro fifty €4.50 a day to park. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Somebody else saying, uh, if you didn't charge, people would be parking there all day and they wouldn't be using the train. That's our programme for today, though. Our time is up, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFN. Good morning.
3: Bye-bye. <laughs> The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660
0: 4237.